Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Greetings, Artemis Sportswomen listeners. This is Mandela. And on this episode, I'm going to be sitting down with Carly Kutnik. She's going to share with us the adventure of being on a 32-foot fishing vessel called the Warthog for eight days fishing for sockeye in Bristol Bay. And Carly is a phenomenal sportswoman and conservationist. She resides in Colorado and grew up with a wide appreciation for our public lands and wildlife. She graduated from the U.S. Air Force Academy with a bachelor's degree in biology and earned her master's degree from the University of Florida in ecological restoration. Carly served eight years in the Air Force, specializing in occupational and environmental health management and sexual assault victim advocacy in Florida and Alaska. She finished her active military service as an instructor of biology at her alma mater and continues to serve in the Colorado Air National Guard. Among Carly's repertoire of interests, she's a lifelong hunter and enjoys camping, triathlons, snowmobiling, and pottery. She is the program manager for Artemis Sportswomen, helping guide Artemis and growing our complete sportswomen community while ensuring conservation is at the core of all things Artemis. Carly, thank you so much for inviting me to host the podcast that you normally host. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to be a guest on our own podcast. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the lovely introduction. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Well, snowmobiling is one of your passions. And through that passion, you found yourself fishing for sockeye up in Alaska. We're going to get to that in a moment. But the first thing I'd like to learn from you is what is in your freezer? And I asked somebody this last night and I ended up holding a deer, uh, an elk heart in my hands. It's a beautiful way to start a podcast. <laughs> I love the fact that Artemis Sportswoman starts with that icebreaker. So Carly, what's in your freezer right now? Well, most recently I have populated my freezer with about 40 pounds of sockeye salmon um, that I brought back with me from my fishing trip in Alaska. So I did get it processed in, instead of actually just taking some of the fish off the boat and I don't know, keep it, throwing them in a, a trash bag, freezing them and making it home. So I, I wanted them to be actually like flash frozen and, you know, able to last a year or so in my freezer so I can share it with friends and family. Um, and I, yeah, I guess I really have otherwise an empty freezer for the most part right now. 
Well, I can say the same for my freezer in Montana because my freezer in Montana is probably still at Costco or wherever it is that I will buy it one day because I live out of my Land Rover, building a home for my mom. One day I look forward to having a freezer or two. I do have a freezer in South Africa and there is some springbok in there from the springbok I harvested uh, back in December in the Kurua. But that's not where we're going to head today. So for those listening out there, sincerely encourage you to take a deep breath and settle. I mean, maybe you're driving, maybe you're at home and you can make yourself a cup of tea and sit back because I also host a podcast and through that podcast, I really try to set a scene for storytelling. And I believe that that's mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. And I feel like a lot of the times we actually kind of multitask when we're listening to podcasts. And if that's what you need to do, groovy. But if you get the chance, if you have the opportunity to sit back and really go on an adventure with Carly and I on this episode, um, maybe just consider it. But without further ado, I would like to just give you a little bit of a taste about what we're talking about. We're going to be talking about conserving salmon habitat. We're going to be talking about commercial fishing regulations and the process in Alaska. We're going to be talking about gear. We're going to be talking about what life's like on the boat. But for starters, Carly, give us a little bit of a background about what you did on this trip and how you came to this opportunity. Of course. So I I suppose I'll start with how I came to this opportunity. Um, I was snowmobiling earlier this year, and one of my friends had just completed an avalanche course, an avalanche safety course, the Airy one. Um, And one of his fellow classmates um, opted to snowmobile with us um, on one of our outings. And in talking to this gentleman, whose name is Patrick O'Neill and is the captain of the Warthog, he mentioned that he was the, he, he had been commercial fishing for over 40 years. He's an Alaska native and has recently moved to Colorado because from Alaska, uh, where he's resided uh, off and on between there and Seattle um, for, for the majority of his life. And so I uh, took it upon myself to invite myself commercial fishing. Um, I, which was, it ended up being a, a, a pretty funny conversation. Um, when he said that I was like, you know, if you need an extra crew member, I would really love to have this experience. I'm not like, you don't have to pay me. I would just love to go out there, experience what it means to be a commercial fisherman and, and how that, like, like how we get our seafood from the sea to the table. And, um, and he said, sure, why don't you come on out this year? <laughs> and I was actually a little surprised because, because it is a business, right? And there's only, uh, three crew members on the boat plus the captain or the skipper. And so I was totally, yeah, I guess flattered that he would be willing to, um, yeah, allow me to spend time on, on his boat this winter, summer, summer, this summer, goodness. Um, Anyway, so that's how it came to be. And I, I think building up to the to early July when I actually went out on the boat with him, I was a little hesitant in terms of going, like, do I have enough information? What things, you know, because Alaska is, I don't know if you felt like this when you went, when you jumped off the plane and were headed for the ALSEC, but planning for Alaska is a different type of planning. The information is there, but the contact and the uh, assistance, like the immediate assistance, is not. And that was one of the, I think that's one of the, my, one of my favorite things about Alaska is that it's so out there. 
um, and so curious um, and so different than really the rat race that we experience on a day-to-day basis um, wherever we re- wherever we normally reside. And that's actually something that I missed um, moving away from Alaska. So I lived in North Pole, Alaska for two years with the Air Force. And when I got off the plane, you know, when I had my layover in Anchorage, it was um, such a wonderful memory. Like, I don't know, I, I was just filled with memories of the number of times I've traveled in and out of there. And then getting off the plane in King Salmon in this small, like itty bitty airport. It's just, it, and not knowing who was picking me up, where I was really going, where I was going to spend the night tomorrow or that night or the, you know, or the next couple. Um, I think that level of not knowing and being in the wild or very close to the wild um, gives you a whole new level of appreciation for Alaska and, and the great outdoors. And then um, I, I suppose going from, so how I got there to what I did. So we ended up, um, so for about two and a half months, we, a commercial fisherman, um, specifically fishing for sockeye salmon goes out on a boat. Um, they don't usually make it back to the dock. They usually, um, stay out on the water all two and a half months without a shower. It's pretty, it's, it's a different level of, um, gnarliness if I were to say so myself, but it's, but also very, uh, yeah, you just, you learn how to, decrease the smell as much as possible. Um, anyway, so so commercial fishing for sockeye salmon, we were out in Quijack Bay, which is adjacent to Bristol Bay, um, on in the Naknek Quijack district, um, which is one of the five districts and, and two rivers. So the Quijack River and the Naknek River are two rivers that are well known for um, sockeye running. And they're managed as such. And Bristol Bay is actually one of the, um, it, it's a very sustainable, um, or it is a sustainable uh, fishery, specifically for sockeye salmon, which is pretty extraordinary because we've seen such a um, significant decrease in salmon fisheries throughout the world, um, especially uh, in the, I guess, lower 48. Um, and so I felt really honored and fortunate to be part of that and to have that experience to be um, yeah, I guess harvesting wildlife from a wild place instead of from a farm. Um, and, and also in mass quantities, it was, it was pretty extraordinary. Um, like I said, I came, I fished the Naknek district for the eight days while I was there and the captain, anytime you change a district, um, one of those five districts, you have to wait 48 hours, um, before you can put your net in the water again. Um, and so oftentimes the fishermen out there will not um, change districts unless they suspect or um, estimate or based on their professional opinion, whether the fish are actually better or, or the fish runs will be better in certain districts. Yeah, which, which I thought was fascinating. And so they, the captain, so Patrick um, ended up taking a 48 hour break. They were up in the Nushigak and um, they weren't catching a ton of fish down there. And so by the time I came into town, and unfortunately they had also hit a barge um, earlier that day, and they ripped the anchor up and out, almost out of the boat, like it, yeah, put it off kilter. So when they picked me up, um, one of the crew members was out front, like trying to drill down into um, like the crew, I guess, our, our quarters, um, which is four bunks um, inside the, the bow of the boat. 
and uh, and it was just crazy, absolutely hectic. Um, and you know, I not ever being on a commercial fishing boat, I know you had to pack light. I did not pack light. I brought a lot of um, layers, a lot of wool layers. Um, I brought some commercial fishing gear, um, and those are a game changer. And then I also wore the extra tough boots, which um, when I lived in North Pole, Alaska for a couple of years, I didn't really understand why or yeah, why that was, I don't know. I, I, I guess I thought it was a style sort of thing. Like it, it was the new thing to do in Alaska was to wear extra tough boots. No, they are actually fantastic. And I highly recommend them anytime you go out. Did you have that? Did you have that same experience on the outside Mandela? I know you wore yours the whole time. Oh, certainly. Yeah. I've grown up with a passion for, we call them gumboots in South Africa. The Zulu tribe often have the gumboot dance where they put bottle caps on a wire around the boots and then they stomp the ground and they smack the boots and they are part of their music. So I grew up wearing gumboots uh, and went through a variety of gumboots in my lifetime and thought, I don't really understand why there's such something so special about extra truffs until I got them and I realized that they really do stick to all surfaces, whether it's a wet raft or um, you know rocks, because they're designed for the, the fishing communities, uh, in particular the ones in Alaska, I believe. And I'll just go ahead and insert too, like one of my tips for those listening who maybe already are wearing extra tufts, wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I put in some wool inserts into my extra tufts. And it was absolute mm-hmm. magic to have that extra warmth in there. So yeah, Carly, they're, they're, they're magical boots. And that's just one of the magical things about Alaska are the boots. <laughs> yes, yes. They have these little blue booties as well that you can um, put in the boots. Um, and then you can wear them around as like slippers on the boat. Uh, I'm not sure what they're called, but all of my counterparts, all of the other crew members um, were huge fans of them. So I did not have those, but I did wear wool socks every day. And I was very, very grateful for that. Um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of natural fibers when you're in the elements. And I learned that in Arctic survival training when I was also stationed up in Alaska. So I don't know, choosing the right gear is, yeah, I, I didn't, I almost didn't purchase the rain gear um, because I was like, you know, I have some pretty good rain slicks and I think that they would work. But um, these Grundens are actually made so that you won't get buttons or zippers caught in the net, um, sending you overboard or getting your, um, yeah, getting drug into the drum that pulls in the fish or pulls in the net. And um, I am very, yeah, I from a, just a safety standpoint alone, I feel I'm very glad that I made that purchase. Um, they are also stained and very disgusting now, even after soaking them in bleach for a day. So, <laughs> so um, I think that's maybe a testament to how much how much fish like the total throughput of fish on the boat that we had this year which actually was probably a little bit lower than what we've seen in previous years um usually like i I wanted actually to try to kind of naturally transition into the licensing and the regulations and how you know alaska manages commercial fishing and you know that process of course. So before I forget, Patrick did mention he brings in about 200,000 pounds of sockeye a year, um, give or take. Yeah. Plus or minus, whatever. And um, like last year, they had an extremely like, I mean, the salmon were running very, very late into the season. And this year was a little bit lighter of a season um, from the sockeye running from the sockeye run. 
Um, so the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, they do manage um, the, yeah, all of the sockeye populations and they manage it by escapement numbers. And an escapement number talks about how many fish actually make it from the ocean, right? Because salmon are anadromous fish, make it from the ocean back into their rivers. And so looking at the uh, Naknek River, they, they have about, they're looking for 800,000 to about 2 million sockeye running each year. So escaping up the river each year. And then for the um, Quijac River, they're looking anywhere from two to 10 million um, each, or I guess this year in 2023, which I thought was fascinating. Um, so there's two offices of the Department, Alaska Department of Fish and Game, one out of Dillingham, one out of King Salmon, and they're constantly monitoring the escapement numbers and what percentage of escapement we're at throughout the season, um, which is absolutely fascinating. Um, we would run into the cabin of the boat every morning at 9 a.m. and then at 12 a.m., 3 p.m. and then 6 p.m. And those were the, when they would release, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game would release the um, emergency orders of when and how long you can fish next. You, because you don't really have um, cell phone service or internet, unless you have Starlink, um, everybody runs in, you listen to it, you write it down and a fishing period for commercial fishing of sockeye salmon um, will open. So they, they give you a couple hours notice and it could open for six hours. It could open for 18 hours. They could extend it. It just totally depends. And so you really have to have a keen ear um, on and, and listen to what they're saying each time. In addition to that, so maybe they had like a, a nine hour fishing period. Maybe then uh, that starts at 3 a.m., and, uh, and then by the time that ends, you would have maybe a three hour break before the next fishing period starts. And so during that break period, if you're not actively fishing, the crew members are either repairing the net, scrubbing the deck, um, making sure that the fish holds are actually the proper temperatures while we're chilling the fish. Um, it's really, a, it, it, but the, the number one thing that they're trying to do is finish all of that stuff up so that they can actually sleep and eat. Um, sleep is a higher priority than eating, and both of those are higher priorities than, and they laugh at this, they, they made a lot of jokes of this, uh, than pooping. So work first, then think of sleeping, then think of eating, then think of pooping. So I thought, I thought it was actually quite humorous <laughs> on the boat. Um, going back, I suppose, to the uh, gonna, fishing game. Uh, oh, go ahead. Gonna, I don't know if I want to endorse... Uh, putting off pooping friends and listeners like in my experience if you're out there in the field and you got to go biological needs come first so um but I, that's really really interesting to hear that carly and, and i almost want to ask you to expand on that concept and how you handle that but go back into the regulations and, and you know Alaska. Let's, let's let's keep it on track and stay on conservation but that is something we're definitely going to talk about off air you know, well, I think we could actually, I think it's actually worth talking about on air. I feel like everybody is always so curious about it and nobody's really willing to talk about it. Um, so maybe we can have it as a little blooper or something um, throughout the show. Or maybe when we, when we make it back after our, our mid-roll. Um, or the people who are listening, partners. if you make it to the very end, we might, we might investigate how <laughs> to, 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 to uh, 
pass a bow movement on a fishing vessel when it's not the top priority. So that's one little thing to keep you listening to the end. But Carly, back to the regulations and the process. Of course. Um, so the so the NACNAC district has so there's so Alaska Department of Fish and Game sells permits and permits are very very difficult to obtain and a captain can um, a, a captain can purchase a permit and there's two types of permits and it will depend on the length so if you have a D permit you can actually have a longer net than just having a, a normal permit for um, Bristol Bay the Bristol Bay fisheries um, and. There's about 450 permits, which means there's 450 boats potentially out on the water, um, which is quite scary uh, when they're all dropping their nets at the same time and all going precarious directions. And I mean, maybe a couple of times we probably missed a boat by, I don't know, maybe three feet. It was, yeah, a couple of, it, it got a little nerve wracking a couple of times. And so I, I do have some footage that maybe we can share with our listeners um, of, of that and how it ended up. It was, these captains and skippers are extraordinary at, yeah, at being at the helm. It's, it's unbelievable. And I was very grateful that Patrick was so skilled. So (laughs) very, very grateful. Um, Yes. So um, going back to the Alaska, Alaska Department of Fish and Game. So Again, they open a fishing period and close a fishing period. And you have to uh, lend an ear for when that actually happens based on those radio recordings. Um, When they open a period, no kidding, the second the minute hits for that period being open, we are dropping our net. And right, so we've been on deck for maybe 30 minutes and we've dropped the net and we've started fishing. Um, And we fish using gill nets. And these gill nets are about 150 fathoms, which uh, one fathom is about six feet. And then um, these nets were about 900 feet long by maybe 12 feet deep. Um, and we could tie them off with buoys or we could tow it behind the boat for a little bit. It just depended on um, Patrick's judgment on, and experience. Um, and so, again, I, was, I, I felt very, very fortunate that he was so knowledgeable and had been doing this for so many years. Um, so dropping the, once you drop the net, um, you can either bring it back in, right? You can drum it back in very quickly or you can... Um, or you can leave it out there for a good bit of time and and then you would reattach the um, drum or the I guess the, I don't know what it was called, the, I guess the rope um, that helped drum the net in. And, um, and then we would do kind of a, there were then four rolls on the boat. You had um, picking, bleeding, uh, chilling and then floating the fish. And those are kind of the main ticket, big ticket items that you do with the fish once you catch them. Um, and so to give you maybe a bit of a picture of what's happening on the boat and where people are at. So again, there's usually three crew members and one captain. Um, the captain will be sitting up top, um, uh, driving and maneuvering the boat. And um, then the three crew members are down below. One of them is on hydraulics, which is um, drumming, both drumming the net in, um, uh, feeding it out. The other two are usually actively picking or managing the net, calling out how many fathoms we have left of the net so the captain can um, adjust the speed of the boat and the direction of the boat. Um, and then, um, And then once you get so many fish, right? So once you've picked so many fish and the entire deck is filled with fish, then you begin to bleed all of the fish. 
So when you pull in the net, this is, this was what I was very not prepared for, I think. Actually, before I go into talking about these things, I will have to say, commercial fishermen should get an awful lot more credit than we give them. It is really, really hard work. I feel like I've done some challenging things in my life. And this was just an extra level of challenging. Reflecting back on this experience, I feel like only a single day elapsed. Like I, I couldn't tell you what time it was. I couldn't tell you when I ate last. I couldn't tell, I just, everything, I was just like in a dysregulated state the entire time. It's just like, you fish, you you fish, you get the fish in the holds, you drop them off, right? You just, you just got to do it. And, uh, and everybody has that mindset. You just, you work really hard. You say a couple curse words, which I'm trying to leave out in this podcast. <laughs> um, uh, and, and yeah, you just learn to suffer, suffer really well. And, um, I think that is truly the definition of type two fun because when the fish are running and you're pulling them out and you're picking them out of the net, man, it's a fantastic feeling of just, you're putting a hundred percent, hundred and ten percent in and everybody is. And if you're not, you might get yelled at. But if you're, yeah, so, so everybody is each time. And, and I, there's a lot of motivation, I think, behind it. Mostly because it's a high-risk situation, um, right? The, uh, fishing in general, commercial fishing in particular, is really, really high-risk. Um, and, yeah, there's a job to do, and you just, yeah, do it. So, going back to the picking, bleeding, chilling, and floating... I was the new member on the boat and kind of the, uh, I, I only had a couple of opportunities to pick fish when the salmon were running a lot slower, um, mostly so that we didn't lose out on actually catching as many fish as we possibly could during that time period. Um, and so uh, picking is when you drum the net in, right? So you have this large drum that's rotating and pulling the net in up and over um, a I can't think of what it's called. I think it's a wheel. Um, the fish are like wrapped into the net. And so think of it as, um, I don't know, I, I guess, it, it, yeah, it, you're pulling it in and um, you have to actually elongate the net, net. And so you are reaching your fingers in with your palms up and you're just um, pulling the net upwards to see if you can actually allow the fish to roll out of the net, which is really nice when they do, but because it's called a gill net, right? Oftentimes it catches right up behind their gills. And so you have to either pop one of the gills out or take their operculum, um, put your fingers up in their operculum into the gills, find the net and push the fish out. And it's really a, a very fast and shaking movement. And um, I am not skilled at it. It takes a couple, it takes one or two seasons to actually get uh, skilled at that. I did. I was talking to Patrick just last week and he said, I thought you did really good at picking, but you definitely hug the fish a little too much, which means I hold on to them entirely too long instead of like pulling them as fast as I can out of the net. They also have tools, which is a fish picker, um, which has a hook on one end um, where you can actually uh, pull the net through and pull the body of the fish out of the net. Um, ideally, you don't want to rip the net or rip several meshes. Um, you want to just maybe rip one. And so that tool will really help you just rip one and pull that fish out. Um, 
we did spend some time actually repairing the nets too. And, and that was a really cool experience to learn how to do that. Anyway, picking your hands. So you're wearing these, uh, I mean, goodness, they're, they're really thick nitrile gloves, um, like the orange and blue gloves that you, you see. And like I said, you, you're pulling the net up. And so when you have more than one or two fish, right, you're, you're lifting up with each finger, maybe 10 pounds a piece. And by the end of that, my knuckles and my fingers and my hands were just so unbelievably sore. Like, again, uh, it was just one of the, it, it was just unbelievably challenging and so satisfying when you were able to get all the fish out. Um, but I very much underestimated the, the, the pain and the, the excruciating pain that ensued once your hands were bruised and then you did it for days thereafter. Moving on to bleeding. Um, bleeding is where you um, pull up the operculum on the fish and the operculum is kind of that uh, hard or cartilaginous cover right over the gills. And so you would push your thumb up and under that. You would reach your finger into, usually your pointer or middle finger, into the gill rakers, um, right? So you have the gills and then in between the gills um, you have gill rakers. And when you have a fish that's 10 pounds, it is extremely, these things are so heavy. <laughs> heavy and really difficult to, to pop. So you kind of twist your wrist and once your finger is through the gill raker, and ideally you just want one gill, um, otherwise it makes it far harder. Um, the tensile strength of gills and gill rakers, unbelievable. Um, and you would twist your wrist and try and pop it. And by bleeding the fish, um, it would increase the quality of the meat. Um, and then you would also chill them. So once you bled the fish, you would put them into the fish holds, which were filled with two bags apiece, and those bags are called brailers. And we would chill the fish for, for to 34 to 39 degrees Fahrenheit um, with seawater. And then we would also float them, which again, increases the quality of fish that you, yeah, uh, that is on your table. So bleeding, so the picking portion, you don't wanna bruise the fish. The bleeding portion um, decreases the blood and like the, and improves the taste of the meat. Chilling and floating, um, make sure that they are quality fish by the time we drop them off. Um, so, but picking and bleeding, even though bleeding is for beginners, at least, at least on our boat, uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for people that do this for two and a half months. Eight days was a long time, two and a half months, impressive. Also, don't forget about the fish slime and the guts and the, um, excuse me, the, so the fish slime, the guts, and the um, like fish scales that were flying all over the place. It was, it was so awesome and gross all at the same time. And then you don't get a shower at the end of that day, right? <laughs> so you've got like slime in your hair. It's, anyway, it was a good, I think I took a couple baby wipes just to my hair to try and get as much out as I could. Um, but I did usually wear a hat or a bandana over my head. With that, there could be no better transition to a message from our partners. Would you like fishing and hunting information and tips from experienced outdoor women? Want to learn about outdoor gear that works for you? Want inspiration and to try something new in the outdoors? Then subscribe to Adventurous the only women's hunting and fishing magazine. Adventurous is a high quality print magazine you will be sure to love, and it also makes a great gift for other outdoor women and youth. Subscribe at adventurousmagazine.com.
This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know, right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. And we are back. So, (laughs) Carly, man, you've got me smiling and contemplating over here there's just so much to it there's so much to the moment that fish is swimming around bristol bay to the moment when i am grilling it up for my friends here in montana or over in san francisco or new mexico or georgia i mean like these fish travel all over the world you ended up going home with some in your freezer and I would love it if you could walk us through the process by which that sockeye salmon goes from the water near your 32 foot fishing vessel um, to the table, you know, and getting packaged and sold on the shelves. Of course, that's a, that's a great question. And this is something that I think I didn't quite understand um, when I first started, but when I first showed up. So once you catch a fish in your gill net, right, you bring them in, you throw them in a fish hold um, after picking bleeding, and then you chill them and um, float them. And after that, you drop them off at a tender, which is a barge. And oftentimes those are like the deadliest catch boats that are taking the fish. So they pick it up from you, really at the mouth of one of the rivers, and they deliver it to one of the fisheries, which I'll define in a moment. They deliver it to one of the fisheries um, who complete all of the processing. And so um, once those fish are processed, they can either be, so these fish are either um, headed and gutted, they can be canned, or we um, make out with boneless fillets um, with their skin on or portion it um, is what the processors usually do. And then they uh, ship it out to, or, and distribute it to um, whatever grocery store. Um, And so the um, fishery that I worked with or that uh, the warthog worked with was Leader Creek Fisheries, but a couple of the others, and you might recognize them from some of like some of the cans, maybe uh, Peter Pan um, cannery. We had Silver Bay, um, OBI. There's a couple of them um, that are on 
uh, that are in and outside of Naknek, the town of Naknek, which, um, yeah, that was, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. So the way that you pick them up from our boat, right, now that we have several hundred fish in each hold, um, and you, you increase each um, bag by each brailer by about 20 fish, 15 to 20 fish, so that the boat isn't lopsided the entire time. And so there's, it was always a perpetual balance of keeping the boat balanced, um, keeping the heavy, right there. So we had a couple like really tall, heavier guys, um, keeping them on one side of the boat versus me on the other side of the boat. So it was constant balance of like, how do we ensure that our boat is in balance so that we're not at higher risk of going overboard, um, particularly if the weather is bad. Once we, once we meet up with a tender, um, we, the intent is to drop our fish off and they have these cranes that come over that also have a scale on them. And we connect those cranes to the brailers. We, um, yeah, which is a, a whole process on its own, but you can do it in about like 10 to 15 minutes and they pick up the brailers. They pull the, the dripping fish over your head, over to their boat and over their crew members heads. And then they drop it in, um, kind of also a slide that takes the fish down into their chillers as well. Um, and they chill those fish and float them in seawater. Um, that's, I think, chilled to, I think I wrote down 33 degrees. Um, also, nobody tells you this, but the tenders also have ice cream, which is about 16 to $18 a gallon uh, by the time you pick it up from there. But man, I will say a gallon of ice cream after a full day of work is is very satisfying. And the way that we divvied it up is you turned the ice cream canister on its side and then you just chopped it with a knife and like kind of threw it in a bowl for everybody and whoever got the bottom just ate it out of the bottom of the, of the thing. It was it was very humorous. Uh, they can they'll carry loaves of bread. They also um, refill your drinking water on the boat and um, can bring you if if like I don't know, friends or family ship you packages, they'll deliver those packages on the boat, which is really nice. And I will say that when you get, uh, I, I guess some of the, one of the crew members at the time, um, somebody got a sticker book, which was pretty cool. And somebody got um, wipes. Those wipes are, man, wipes are a great thing to have um, on a fishing boat. That was a huge digression, but the tenders, we really appreciate them. <laughs> they're, they're really quite fantastic. Um, and I've heard actually in some cases they'll also do your laundry, which would have been nice, but we're not there long enough to um, have that done. So once we bring the fish to the tenders, the tenders will then transport that fish down to um, the dock where the fishery is, and they'll drop it off at a boomer, which is a large barge that um, will transport those fish up to the processor or the fishery. Going back to defining what fisheries are, right? So we have from a biological standpoint a fishery, which is um, talking about the a single species of fish in a particular area, um, in a particular geographic area, um, and and how, yeah, basically the ecology of them, I suppose. And then from a processing standpoint, you also have fisheries, which are truly the processors and help with a lot of the logistics. Um, when you bring your fish in. And so I know I had a lot of confusion, at least initially when they were throwing around the term fisheries a lot because I had the biological definition um, kind of 
yeah, in my brain before, before I arrived. Yeah. So Leader Creek Fisheries is who we dropped ours off to. And they work around the clock, especially when there's a high um, volume of fish coming in. And they usually fly. So they'll like post their jobs online and they'll fly people up there for two and a half months to work like 16 to 18 hour days standing in a fish processing line where they, um, yeah, they, they gut the fish, can the fish, whatever, freeze the fish. Um, and then you sleep in a, um, you, you go to sleep and you wake up the next morning and you do the exact same thing. So it's, it's hard work. And I have, again, the utmost respect for both commercial fishing and the processing side of the house which I unfortunately didn't get to see. Once the processors have a final product, again, they distribute it. And um, many of these processors have uh, an extension of their company that's down in Seattle, and then it's usually distributed, to my understanding, from Seattle. And then you cook it. And I was told by Patrick that you must cook your salmon at 400 degrees for nine minutes with olive oil, salt and pepper, and pressed garlic. I'm curious, Mandela, what's your sockeye salmon recipe? And I'm also curious, what's your favorite type of salmon? Lovely. I liked how you did the little switcheroo back to being the host of the Artemis podcast, because if you've just tuned in, this is Mandela, and I'm the one who does the communications, not necessarily in the realm of being the host, but I'm so honored to have been able to host this episode talking with Carly about her trip because we actually held off on sharing the adventure because I wanted her to tell me about it for the first time when we were recording because in my experience a lot of the times the story is the best when it's told for the first time. So um, to answer your question about what my favorite salmon is, I'd say I'm just going to say the one that's ethically harvested and uh, you know where it comes from, right? Uh, I think it's so important to know where your fish comes from. And so um, more than likely the people listening to the show know where their fish comes from, but it, there's ways that we can continue to spread awareness about, you know, how important that is. And uh, more and more you see uh, on the packaging um, information about where that, a that animal comes from. And um, with salmon, I would just say that I've had a lot of very positive experiences with smoked salmon. And um, in college, my roommate, she had, salmon jerky. It was these beautiful ropes of salmon jerky and she would dip it in blubber. Um, and I tried dipping it in the blubber once. It was, it was a very heavy and wholesome, uh, addition to the salmon. Um, I, I, I tried it twice and decided it wasn't really for me, but if I were to be living up there, I think it would have helped me to obtain some natural layers in my system to stay warm. So, uh, yeah, I hope that answers your question. I really do, uh, appreciate salmon, but my favorite animal actually in the whole world tied with the great white shark and a horse is a steelhead. And, uh, and sometimes they frolic with the salmon. I also quite like steelhead flesh, but with that, I did want to talk to you a little bit more about recipes. Um, and I'm glad you asked me because my favorite recipe when preparing steelhead or salmon is called fire alarm salmon. And the reason it's called fire alarm salmon is because the fire alarm usually goes off when I'm making it. And then you know it's going to be good. So what I do is I bake it um, at, I think, 300 for 20 minutes, and then I broil it for 10. And um, I put lemon and garlic, sometimes ginger, for sure olive oil on top. And, um, and that's that broiling time at the very end when um, 
when the fire alarm can go off. You just got to be kind of careful with that. So uh, that's my favorite approach. But I just love smoked smoked uh, salmon. And I love uh, in South Africa, we have biltong, which is dried meat. I really like it when there's a smoke flavor to it. Um, so yeah, Carly, what's another, what, before you were cooking it the way that Captain Patrick told you to, how were you preparing salmon up until then? Um, well, admittedly, I would usually, uh, I usually go to my friends and family's house to eat fantastic salmon. So, um, but usually I would, uh, I suppose when I lived in Alaska, um, I would use, yeah, lemon juice and salt and pepper and really just keep it basic or smoked. I, yes, smoked with capers. It's pretty tasty too. So yeah, I, I guess I've cooked it in a couple of different ways and you can't go wrong with smoked salmon. Yeah. And actually just for those who actually want to make uh, fire alarm salmon, it's actually baking it at 320 for 20 and then you broil it for 10. Um, Carly, I had a pretty profound experience on the Alsek river recently, which is also in Alaska. Um, we were, in the middle of the Yukon territory, surrounded by glaciers, and we were having smoked salmon with cream cheese and bagels. And and I, and then after that, I was like not interested at all in ever having smoked salmon if it wasn't in that setting. <laughs> and the salmon came from the Lynn Canal near Haines. And then after that, in Haines, I had a Alaskan halibut fish and chips, and it was so good. I ordered the exact same meal the very same day, the same day I flew out of Haines. And so, um, man, Alaska changes you, whether it's the landscape or your, your approach to, you know, purchasing and, and consuming fish. I think it was John Muir who said something along the lines of, don't go to Alaska when you're young because you'll never find anything that compares to it for the rest of your life. I couldn't agree more. That's, it is such an extraordinary location and so vast and fill and so wild and filled with so much wildlife. You're right. You'll never, you'll never see that ever again. And it's right there. I mean, it's, it's for us and I'm in Montana. I mean, you're in That's a long flight. <laughs> I reckon I sometimes have to travel for like two days to get to where I need to go. So it's nice to be like, Alaska's right there. And you could even drive there if you fancied, but okay, um, fair. Good point. There's a few other things that I definitely want to make time to talk about. And one of them is the fascinating life cycle of salmon. Of course. So the life cycle of salmon, right? So salmon, um, once they are sexually mature, they will run up the rivers um, where they were, where, yeah, where, where I guess they hatched. And um, they will drop several thousand eggs. And um, those eggs will ultimately be fertilized and hatch into fry. And those fry will either stay in that freshwater, typically, especially if there's a lake feeding the system, um, like the, I think, I think the Quijack actually has a lake that feeds it. Um, those uh, fry will stay there for one to three years is my understanding. They will swim back down the river as anadromous fish, right? They will, which is a really, I mean, goodness, if you want to look into something interesting, look at the osmolarity of fish and like how they regulate um, their salt and water levels, especially as they change from freshwater to saltwater and back. Absolutely fascinating. Then they um, spend anywhere from two to three years uh, in the in the ocean, right? In 
and in the Pacific Ocean, uh, where they eat krill, phytoplankton, um, and uh, and a number of other small critters. And those will actually those are um, really the result of well those result in the color of the red salmon that we consistently know. Um, and I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. I, when you have a salmon filet and it is just this vibrant red orange, it's just, it's fantastic. Um, those salmon swim back up river and um, they again, uh, continue the process, right? After two to three years, some of them are shorter, some of them are longer um, via smell, they'll swim back up their, um, their river of origin and spawn there, uh, which is, I think, extraordinary. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, they are a tremendous, I, I suppose, I think they're, they're, they're regu heavily regulated in the state of Alaska, which leads to the sustainability of the fishery itself. But also, I think it's worth saying that it is um, really a, a core component to many of the native villages that um, exist on, um, on these five rivers and, um, and fished um, many, many years ago when uh, that was their sole source of food um, during a, a part of the year. Um, so yeah, it, salmon is, it's, there's, from a cultural standpoint, from an ecological standpoint, they are extremely important to, goodness, to Alaska and to the United States. And so we export a lot of frozen and canned salmon uh, to the U.S. and the U.K., from what I understand. And then um, the roe or the eggs, um, we export a lot of those to Japan. Mm -hmm. Now let's bring it back to conservation. Right, because as we know, you and I, and probably many of the listeners, there's a massive connection between fishing, hunting, and conservation. But in particular, let's focus on commercial fishing and how it's, you know, connected with conservation and being conservation-minded. So I think I, I think it goes hand in hand, right? Similar to hunting and fishing, um, hunting and fishing from uh, maybe a sporting standpoint, but commercial fishing. Although it has a lot to do with um, the livelihood of many people, I think that it also builds and grows recognition of these of these species that are fantastic and sustainable food sources, and it drives the need to um, have awareness and advocate for salmon habitat, um, particularly these five uh, rivers that. Uh, feed into Bristol Bay. Um, I think that it's really, yeah, I, I just have the utmost respect for commercial fishermen who it's a hard lifestyle and they invest so much into the fishing and, and the fish themselves. Um, it's a, it's pretty magical how they're able to make it uh, this large of an industry and support conservation in that aspect. So Carly, you were a little bit nervous going into this. How did you manage that out there? How did you manage that in your preparation on arrival and then dealing with working with a very little sleep in conditions where if you make one mistake, it could be detrimental to 
yourself, your life, your crew. You and I both were in Alaska in a place where if you make a mistake, you could die or someone else could. So I would like to talk to you about fear, how you manage that and um, your takeaway, you know, after facing that fear, because I think that's so beautiful what you did. That's a great question. I, man, managing fear is such a, uh, maybe a challenging thing. And I think I maybe learned this coping skill in college, right? When uh, at the Air Force Academy, when people would yell at you all day long and you were exhausted and you're eating really dense food and, uh, and it was just unbelievably challenging and you didn't know if you would be able to make it the next day and you would make it the next day. And I think experiencing that level of struggle and challenge at 17 years old, um, I learned that the, that it's okay to be scared and the sun will rise the next day and the next day will pass. And to overreact or to react at all to any situation you have to remove the emotion from it, especially when the stakes are high, right? Especially when there's immense risk is you focus on the issue at hand, you complete the issue at hand. And then after that event or after that situation, then process, then think, then reflect. Um, and I think that I have brought that into my adult life um, as well of, I now choose to have experiences where I feel the tightness in my throat and in my chest, because that's where you grow and learn and develop and change. Um, and I, there's, yeah, I, I guess I feel fortunate that I can sit with that level of discomfort and can move through it, even though I don't love it at the time, knowing on the other end of that, that the reflection and the stories and the camaraderie and friendships are far more long lasting. So yeah, I, I tell myself, um, I, when I actually, when I was stationed in Alaska, I would say I would lean forward. If some, if I didn't like something or something was uncomfortable, I would lean forward or lean into it and and really just immerse myself in it regardless of yeah re regardless of maybe the risk at the time or what i perceived as risk you were bold and that's what we signed the show off with you, you were you were bold you were curious and you got outside you got outside on a boat and I think you're probably connected with yourself more and with your food more and with your work in conservation more than before this experience that put you a little bit out of your comfort zone. I'm very, very out of my comfort zone. It's very out of my comfort zone. You're glad you did it. Yes. And next year I aspire to do two and a half months and just do the grind. I love this. This is beautiful. You know, one of the quotes that I love is uh, do one thing every day that scares you. And you, I think we both do that 
And uh, I'm just glad <laughs> to work with you on a daily basis and to have been able to sit with you and learn more about your trip to Alaska and about how commercial fishing in Bristol Bay works. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Mandela. Thanks for hosting the Artemis podcast. I really appreciate it. And I'm flattered that I had the opportunity to share this story with, with you and our listeners. You know, in terms of like the sign off, we're, we're, we're not signing off yet, but the sign off for the Artemis podcast is be bold, stay curious and get outside. We just talked about, you know, one of the, one of the many approaches that people can take in terms of being bold. Um, another approach to being bold could be, um, being really nervous about potentially going and meeting new people, but putting yourself out there and making some new friends. You know, you don't necessarily have to be hardcore and, and go and spend a week on a 32 foot fishing vessel. I, I hope that Carly's story inspires you, but also realize there's many different approaches to being bold and advocating on behalf of wildlife and wild places. Another way to stay curious is ask questions, you know, and I feel like Artemis has so many opportunities to ask questions and not only ask questions once, ask them multiple times because there's a lot of information out there. When I'm guiding, I often say to my guests, no more worrying, right? Leave it to us. This is now your time to relax. We're going to make sure this is the most incredible river trip of your life. And so part of that is asking questions and it's okay to ask the same question more than once. And so there are so many opportunities around the country with Artemis events that are happening both virtually and in person. Uh, I think that if you haven't already, please do look into them and attend and ask questions. Stay curious. What other ways do you think you stay curious, Carly, besides what you just did up in Alaska? Wow, that is a great question. Um, I suppose I, I try and share that curiosity with other people. And so like, I'll take my nephews on a nature walk. And uh, my sister told me when we got, when we got home the other day um, that she she had thrown a load of laundry in and uh, when it got to the dryer, she said there, when I pulled the clothes out, there were rocks in there. There were seeds and plants in there. And uh, I'd like, I know you're not supposed to pick things. It was very thrilling to me to help ignite that curiosity of nature in, in, you know, a five and a seven year old. So um, yeah. And then I guess on a personal standpoint, I do. Uh, yeah, I guess I talk to a lot of other people. I try to learn something from everybody. And I really love book recommendations. Um, and, and while a lot of that ends up being professional reading, I also think that there's something wonderful about just immersing yourself in a different world of a fantastic read. Um, and so I, yeah, so if you have any book recommendations, I'd love to hear them. Well, I am reading a book called The Brilliant Abyss, and it's about the deepest parts of the ocean and how we can protect them. Did you know that the deepest part of the ocean was between 32 and 36,000 feet below sea level? I didn't know that. That's, that's another world that I'm so curious about and we don't know that much about. So in terms of getting outside, I feel like we have to just count our blessings every day, right? For the opportunity to have access to public lands, but like our partner podcast says, with privilege comes responsibility. More and more people are moving to Missoula. More and more people are moving to beautiful places like where you are in Colorado. But with that privilege of living in those places comes responsibility. 
And so I feel like part of that responsibility is getting outside, being connected with the land and learning about what's happening on that landscape and what you can do to help advocate on its behalf. What's your favorite way of getting outside, Carly? I'm putting you on the spot here. Um, but you know, if you were to step out your door, don't consider the weather today. Just if you could get outside right now in any form, what's your favorite way? I mean, I, I think that my like personal therapy is just finding a dirt road, any, any dirt road that puts you in the middle of a field, be it an ag field or be it in the mountains where you can just roll down your windows and I guess, and feel small right? Blissfully small. I think that maybe that's the best way that I get outside and then, right, to take, and, and maybe that's the most immediate way I can do it. But ideally, I follow that with a hike or, right, I, I follow that with a more more immersion um, and getting outside. I, I do love the outdoors there. It's so humbling. Yeah. And the majority of the time, it really does shift your perspective on whatever you had on your mind up until that moment when you hit the dirt road. And for me, I love dirt roads, but it's definitely being near water, ideally a river. And so I hope that after you're done enjoying this podcast, if you're not already outside, that you do step outside. And with that, I'd like to close with your hit and your miss of lately. Great. Another, another solid question. And I struggle with this one, even as a, even when I hosting the podcast, I think that my hit was, was seeing the sunrise come up, right. Is accepting the, the, and accepting that I didn't have knowledge and understanding of the experience that I was about to have, right. Accepting that when I got off the plane and I walked outside that hopefully I would somehow get a ride to where I was supposed to go and, the boat that I was supposed to get to would somehow show up and, and in Alaska, it all seems to work out. And I would say that, yeah, leaning forward and having this experience and being fearful and willing to have an adventure and challenge. I would say that that ultimately was my hit and I'm fortunate and grateful and Thankful that I had an awesome crew and an awesome captain um, on the Warthog, and I can't wait to do it again. Well, I can. I can wait. I'm happy there's space in between, but I'm also looking forward to doing it in the future. So that's my hit. What about you, Mandela? All right. Well, I really hope my mom doesn't listen to this podcast, but... Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So oh, no. <laughs> there's a chance that about 10, to, 10 days ago, um, a bike fell over on my knee and it you have to be more specific than that well you sure. gotta give them give them some of the yeah okay give, friend. give them some visuals yeah all right listeners my mom doesn't know i ride a motorcycle i can't believe i just said that it's a podcast she's probably gonna hear about this if you're listening and you're like i'm gonna tell mandela's mom please don't she, she worries about me and i just i want her not to worry so much i'm a very safe motorcycle enthusiast i've been riding for the most about, responsible Really, the most responsible. Safety is my middle name. I take calculated risks. <laughs> but, um, I've been riding a motorcycle for ooh, like at least 10 years. Um, and I ride a KLR 650. It's a dual sport motorcycle. It's definitely my dream to ride that from Alaska to Argentina. And um, 
I was riding up a steep hill at night and the front tire, when it went from pavement to gravel, um, it kind of spun out. And then unfortunately, sometimes people do this thing called a whiskey throttle where they hit their throttle um, when they're going down. And then it like, you know, it activates the bike to potentially leap into the air and do a 180 and um, land. And um, so it landed on my knee. And so I've got a little limp, but it's better today. And I'm all right. The, the, the moral of the story is you should definitely remember that uh, motorcycles are as dangerous as they are fun and you need to be paying attention at all times. And um, just, yeah, I was going slow, but that happened and it could have been a lot worse. And I'm just so grateful that I'm all right. And uh, taking a little break from riding, but I'm certainly going to get back on the pony soon enough. My hit is by the time this podcast airs, President Biden will have designated Grand Canyon National Monument or Greater Grand Canyon National Monument. And of course, we're going to have to cut this out if it hasn't gone through, but I feel safe saying, you know, if it's going to happen um, this week, then uh, that will most certainly be a hit for the tribes that have been working on this since the 80s. And it has been an honor to stand behind them as they work towards permanent protections for Grand Canyon. And in conservation, it can sometimes feel like pushing a boulder uphill. So when there are wins, I think it's just really good to celebrate them and to realize that this work doesn't stop. And hopefully this is just a nudge and a reminder for everyone listening and everyone who's worked on this to realize the power of our the power of our collective voices when we speak up on behalf of wildlife and wild places. So with that, I would like to just say thank you so much, Carly, for joining me on this path of wildlife conservation and for being a fellow sportswoman who is uh, actively staying engaged. And uh, I hope that you were inspired after hearing Carly's story. I know that I was. Thank you, Carly. Thank you for having me as a guest on the Artemis podcast, and I'm glad you're on the mend. With that, thanks for joining us on the Artemis podcast. Be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Should we do the, uh, how, how you poop on the boat? Oh, yes. If you've made it to the very end, <laughs> then you've got the bonus content of how we deal with bowel movements on 32 foot fishing vessels in Alaska. Thank you so much, Carly. Please no problem. Me. Absolutely. So there is a five gallon bucket and a, um, toilet seat that you set on top of this five gallon bucket. And hopefully the wave, you have pretty small waves, right? The, the sea is pretty quiet while you're having this experience and you take it around to the other side of the boat, hopefully where nobody is at or watching. And uh, you set it, set everything up. The way you set it up is you, uh, the bucket also has a rope on it. You scoop up some seawater, maybe four or five inches. You haul it up overboard, set your um, toilet seat on it, do your business. Again, if it is, uh, if really the seas are tumultuous, you just kind of, you hold on. You, hold, you, you just hold on to anything that you possibly can. Um, when you finish your business, you have uh, 
just a sheet of toilet paper. You throw everything overboard. You rinse out the bucket. Wipe out the bucket if you need any extra assistant. If if you have a couple smudges and um, and and that's how it's done. I will also say peeing on the boat is very challenging, especially when there's some serious waves. I brought my pee style to use, and it ended up being very very helpful in like quick and emergent situations. Um, but most of the time, I just had to like take off all my rain gear, pull my bibs down, and yeah, and just squat and pee off, uh, kind of pee near a drain on the side of the boat. Um, so it was a, like I said, it was an absolute experience and I highly recommend it for some type two fun. So thank you for listening to the Artemis podcast and staying a little bit afterwards to hear some turd stories. All right, Carly, you fill in the, you fill in the blank. Be old. Stay (laughs) curious. And get, get outside. Over and out. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.